Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. Poland has been very much in the news in recent days as Israel responded angrily, especially in the person of Yair Lapid, who was our foreign minister, to a Polish law saying that Jews could no longer seek legal redress for property that they'd lost in the Second World War. And we're going to come back to that. But Poland's being in the news uh, reminded me really of a wonderful, fascinating, and provocative piece uh, that my friend and colleague David Bernstein wrote in Lairhouse and then appeared as a blog in the Times of Israel. So I reached out to David to see if we could talk a little bit about the thesis of his piece and share some thoughts about what's going on with Poland these days in general. David uh, has for 23 years uh, been the dean of Pardes. Pardes is really the first institution that brought Israel-based study of Torah to men and women together in a serious textual way. Uh, the symbol, or I guess an indication of Pardes's profound success is that now it's not the only program doing that, uh, but it is still sort of the grand papa of these great programs. And David has been the dean of it for 23 years, starting in September this year, he will be dean emeritus. And in addition to um, doing that for 30 years or so, David has been leading trips, especially to Poland, uh, but to other places as well, where there have been centers of Jewish life, Berlin, Prague, Budapest, Vienna. I had the privilege, Eli Shev and I had the, prob- the privilege of being with David on a trip to Poland, which was literally life-changing and an extraordinary teaching experience to watch you do your work, David. And of course, you also teach uh, in schools all over the world, now in the Zoom times uh, of COVID, perhaps a little bit more over Zoom, but I guess you're hoping to get back to teaching in American schools, especially in person. And the last thing that I'll just say by way of introducing you is that now that you're going to be the Dean Emeritus of Pardes, you're starting to do even more educational consulting. You've joined the JED Group, uh, which does Jewish educational consulting. You can tell us a little bit more about that if you like. Anyway, a person of tremendous accomplishment, great knowledge, decades of experience in the Jewish educational world. Uh, So thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you, Danny. So you wrote this, I thought, really fascinating piece in Lairhouse. It came out right before Tisha B'Av, right before the 9th of Av, um, which is obviously a day in which we mourn not only the temples, but we think about all sorts of catastrophic events over the course of Jewish history, among which, of course, is the Holocaust, the Shoah, and what happened to Polish Jewry, and your piece came out timed right around then. And you basically made a fascinating comment or a fascinating thesis about the ways in which you've seen changes among both in Poland over the last 30 years and then changes in North American young Jewish kids. And I think you wrote specifically actually about modern Orthodox kids who are the preponderance of the participants in these programs. 
uh, you've seen changes among them also in 30 years. So let's start with the first one and then we'll go to the second one. What's happened in Poland to your mind over the course of the last 30 years? <clears throat> so um, Poland is really uh, probably the most successful of the post-communist countries uh, that used to be behind what we call the Iron Curtain. And um, Successful in what way? Successful uh, economically, uh, successful um, in terms of having created a liberal democracy, at least for a period of time. Uh, it's now a more illiberal democracy, um, like a number of other countries in the Turkey, world. Turkey, for example. Turkey, Hungary, uh, and others. Um, and in, in Poland, um, there was a great desire after the fall of communism to become part of the EU, to become part of NATO, uh, to become part of the West. Uh, Poles do not view themselves as living in Eastern Europe. They view themselves as living in Central Europe. Uh, and, um, and that liberal democracy uh, that was created after the fall of communism actually was a, uh, a wonderful breeding ground for the revival of Jewish life. Um, because as the West was embracing multiculturalism in the early 90s, uh, Poland too wanted to embrace multiculturalism. Of course, it wasn't really a multicultural country anymore, but it had been in the past. Uh, and so looking back before communism, looking back in history before uh, World War II, Poland tried to uh, restore its own self-image as a multicultural country. Uh, and that made it actually um, very easy. I shouldn't say very easy. It made it easier uh, for Jews who were just discovering their Jewishness that had been hidden through the years of the war and through the years of communism to come out of the closet and to be able to say, I'm Jewish, uh, which was not an easy thing to do. I really didn't mean to say it was easy. But it made it easier because the reception that they got in general Polish society was, oh, that's cool. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and this, of course, was true in the cities. And this is one of the major issues that uh, exists in Poland, exists, I think, in the United States, too, and in probably many other countries. And that is that the urban population is overwhelmingly uh, college-educated and much more liberal in thought uh, than the rural population. Um, so... Um, that changed uh, about a decade ago, or so ago, a decade and a half ago, when uh, more right-wing parties took, uh, took over power, the Law and Justice Party, which is currently in power. Um, they, they don't re represent necessarily a majority of Poles, but they do represent a very large minority of Poles, uh, and their views are much more illiberal, uh, and, uh, and we've seen that. Uh, and what are their views of Jews and what happened during the war? So they play very much to anti-Semitic views that exist in Poland about the Jews, um, which definitely hold currency amongst much of the rural population, probably some of the urban population as well. Um, and uh, and those, those views are, interestingly enough, uh, views of a population that hardly exists in Poland today. I mean, we don't know how many Jews are in Poland today, but the number might be 10,000. Uh, 
Um, so it's a there tiny, were three million before the war, right? Yes, they were. 10% and there were three hundred thousand at the end of the war. Correct. So in the last seventy years, ninety percent were exterminated during the war. Correct. And since then, you're saying another more than ninety percent of what was left at the war has left or drifted away. What happened to them? Where did the other yeah. ones go? Um, most of them fled because there were a series of pogroms uh, right after the war. Right, people that went back to their shtetls were killed there. Correct. Perpetrated by Poles. Uh, Jan Gross, in his book, Fear, Anti-Semitism After Auschwitz, cites that uh, about a thousand Jews were murdered. Holocaust survivors. Uh, Shortly after the war, in 1945, 46, and early 47, the Kelcher Program of 1946, in which 42 Jews were murdered in the city of Kelcher. and, and that caused a wave of po- Polish-Jewish emigration, uh, including my own parents, uh, who returned to their homes in Poland, having survived the war in the Soviet Union. Uh, and they fled, uh, ironically, to Germany, uh, where there were DP camps and where the Allied armies had uh, you know, set up a place that was quote-unquote safe for Jews, even if it wasn't ideal. Um, so... Going back to this issue of the anti-Semitic uh, tropes, uh, they view the Jews as bloodsuckers. That's, that's one of the most common terms used today in Poland. The Jews are bloodsuckers. They're used by the government? This used, used by sometimes officials in the government, but in common parlance, uh, the Jews are extorting money. Uh, they're trying to make money on the Shoah, uh, and that... Um, and that they just want to steal the Polish money. Now, how has that affected your work in Poland? When you take trips to Poland, we'll come back to the people who participate in just a second, but mm-hmm. um, how has this shift, let's say, over the last decade, you've been doing it for 30 years, you see a change in the last 10 years, has it affected your ability to do the kind of work that you do in Poland? Uh, it hasn't affected it directly, uh, meaning I don't censor myself, I don't know of any guides or historians that censor themselves, and I don't think there's any attempt uh, cleverly by the Polish government uh, to, uh, to try to uh, censor people uh, who are guiding in Poland. But um, there, it, it, it's really, uh, there have been some positive things. On the one hand, uh, this government has invested a lot of energy and money in recognizing the rescuers, because that's the version of history they want to teach. They want to teach that the Polish people saved many, many Jews. And there is some truth to that. It just ignores the other side of the coin. Uh, Actually, there are three sides of the coin. Most most Poles probably were indifferent uh, to what was happening to the Jews, the tragedies of falling Jews, in part because they were suffering as well, not exactly in the same way, but they were suffering as well. Um, But uh, as uh, Jan Grabowski and Barbara Engelkling, two very brave Polish historians, and other Polish historians have, have researched, uh, the social norms in Poland during that time was, uh, were definitely uh, to collaborate with the Nazis in this aspect of Nazi policy, uh, that is, uh, handing over Jews, sometimes murdering Jews outright, uh, Yedwabna, uh, and according to the Pauline uh, Museum of Polish Jewish History, perhaps about 70 cases are known where uh, the Poles themselves murdered the Jews. That doesn't account for anywhere near the three million Polish Jews who were killed. The vast majority were killed by the Germans. Um, But um, it was very common that Poles handed over uh, 
Jews to the Nazis and received in return money, meat, uh, liquor, uh, things that were in great demand. Uh, right, so, the but the point is that there were also rescuers, and those are the people that the Polish government is trying to focus on. Correct, correct. So that, so that. Thank you for bringing me back to that. Uh, so you know, so for example, in Markova, the small little village, not even town, small little village in Poland, uh, there was a family called the Ullman family, Victoria and Joseph uh, uh, Ullman, uh, and they they were remarkable people who hid a number of Jews for a period of well over a year uh, and, uh, and ultimately were discovered and they were murdered together with the Jews that they were hiding. By the Poles or the Germans? By the Germans. By the Germans. And they are held up today as great Polish heroes. Something that wasn't true under communism and uh, something that this government definitely should get credit for uh, is that they hold up the rescuers. Of course, they're whitewashing the whole picture uh, by making this seem like this was the norm. Um, and those, I actually think those people were even braver because they were defying not only the Nazis and risking their lives, they were defying the social norms in Poland at the time. Um, so, uh, so the Omens have, uh, have a, uh, a school named after them now. They have a museum built in that small little village to honor them. And they should be honored. Uh, but obviously, they're not telling the whole story. Okay, this is actually fascinating. We could talk about this forever. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. This is the part about Poland shifting over the years. So in a certain way, there's a kind of a resurgence of the anti-Semitic feeling. There's a re-legitimization of all kinds of anti-Jewish discourse. There is, as you said, a kind of a whitewashing of the Polish experience during the war, the Polish deeds during the war. And yet at the same time, in the, right, in the correct direction, kind of an honoring of people who were rescuers and a bit of resistance and so forth. That's really amazingly interesting to me, at least. Now, in your piece in, in the Lair House, though, you actually wrote about another side of the picture altogether, which is the nature of the people that you've seen over the course of the last 30 years coming on these trips, which typically are sponsored by organizations, schools, especially in the United States, mostly Orthodox and modern Orthodox kids, although not exclusively. And I would guess overwhelmingly, but not entirely, absolutely ending up in Israel after they go to Poland. And you wrote about the differences that you've seen in these young people from where they were 20, 30 years ago. Say something about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we all know there's been a sea change uh, in, in, in the world. And it certainly is reflected in the generational changes. Um, you know, the, the iPhone, uh, the social media uh, have changed things dramatically. Uh, and uh, we all know, for example, that uh, people have shorter attention spans. Not only young people, we all do, um, because things are so instantaneous online that we're not used to waiting for anything anymore. Uh, so the shorter attention spans are certainly part of it. The distractions. Um, it used to be when people didn't have cell phones, um, at least when kids didn't have cell phones, let's say in the 1990s when I started guiding in Poland, uh, that uh, you know you would come back to the bus and uh, people would be sitting with what they had just seen uh, and they'd be reflecting on it. Today, typically, <clears throat> people come back to the bus and here it's adults, not just children. Uh, they come back to the bus and they get on their phone and they're on email or TikTok or Instagram and they're distracted. Uh, so things don't perhaps uh, sink so deeply inside 
uh, one's emotional being. And what about the levels of preparation that they're coming with? What's changed there? So, um, all of the educators that I speak to here in Israel who deal with uh, American Jews who are coming for a summer or a year of study talk about the diminution of Hebrew. And you're talking now about a modern Orthodox population primarily? Uh, yes, but even beyond that. In other words, uh, the typical non-Orthodox American Jew, Reform, Conservative, who would go to Hebrew school, uh, you know, the, our older listeners will remember when there was such a thing as going to Hebrew school three times a week for three hours at a time. Right now it's once a week. Yes. And uh, during those times, people would actually learn Hebrew language. Right, but my point of my question was that even modern orthodoxy, in your experience, yes. has not been exempt from this pattern that you're seeing. Not at all. Uh, the day schools themselves are very aware of the uh, problematics of Hebrew learning, learning Hebrew. Why is Hebrew diminished? I mean, in, when you go from three times a week to one time a week, I understand mm -hmm. there's simply less hours. But kids are still going from K through 12 to excellent schools, and they're still putting in as many hours in school. They're not any less smart than they were 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So why do they know so much less Hebrew? It's a very good question. Uh, I haven't researched this, but I'll tell you my initial thoughts. Um, first of all, I think it's connected to a very strong uh, Zionist feeling, uh, a cultural Zionist feeling that existed in uh, Jewish day schools in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, where the teaching was done ivrit be ivrit. Hebrew, any Jewish subject was taught in Hebrew. And that was almost the norm uh, in, the, uh, in the Jewish day schools in North America. Uh, and, and that started to decline in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And the reason that it started to decline, uh, I think more than anything else, has to do with the teachers. Uh, the teachers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were often refugees from Europe who had a terrific Jewish education, including Hebrew language, or Israeli Yordin, uh, because many Israelis left the country in the 50s when things were very hard here, uh, who came and, uh, and many of them were very educated. And they served as the teachers. And beginning in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, we see that not only do those people age and retire, but the younger teachers who are coming in um, have less of that Hebrew background. Uh, and in fact, there was even an attempt to have more homegrown uh, young American Jewish teachers, uh, perhaps I was one of them, um, to replace these people who uh, were not venerated in the way that they are today. I mean, Holocaust survivors were not venerated in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, not in Israel and not in America. Right, for different reasons in each place, but right. definitely but, shared. But uh, they were seen as refugees. They were seen as foreigners. They, they didn't know baseball and football and basketball. Uh, and, uh, and having people who were young and cool, uh, who were American homebred educators, had a certain advantage. Um, and Hebrew began to be seen as a kind of an obstacle. If the main goal is to keep our children religious or keep them in the fold, whatever that means to different groups of people, uh, then Hebrew is kind of an obstacle because what's more important is meaning. Um, but of course there's a price to be paid. 
because the lack of Hebrew also means that there is uh, a lack of connectedness uh, to the texts and the literature uh, of our people, both ancient and contemporary. And there's also a lack of connectedness, I would imagine, when they leave Poland and fly to Israel. Um, you know, you sit, we're, we're, we're meeting in Baca this morning, and uh, you go to shul in one place in Baca, I go to shul in a different place in Baca, but these kids often end up in shul with us. Yes. Um, and you've seen a change in how they, in what they understand, right? Yes, yes. So I, I wrote in the article that uh, when, when someone sits next to me who's over the age of 50, Generally, they understand the drasha, the sermon of the rabbi. That's given in Hebrew, That's obviously. given in Hebrew. But if a, a younger person comes and sits next to me, generally they can't follow it. It's a generalization, but I find that it's usually the case. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, as, as a person who's really spent now 30 years, basically, working with young people, both at Pardes and on these trips and so on and so forth, what's the, what's the implication of all of this change, both the, but they know less Hebrew. I want to come back one other thing. They know less history also? Yes, they know less history and they know, they know less Jewish literature. Uh, I'm speaking now about modern Jewish literature. So for example, very few of them had, have read works of Shalom Aleichem or Yudlamid Peretz, uh, in which normally would have happened in a Hebrew Which was bread and butter in Jewish education in the 50s and 60s. Absolutely. Um, so very few of them. So they have less of an appreciation for East European Jewish life, which was so rich and so vibrant, and it's one of the things that I feel is so important to convey uh, on these trips. Right. I remember when our kids, maybe like yours also, from here went on these trips, one of the things that all of their schools stressed to the parents before these Polish trips was that this was not a tour of concentration camps that this was going to be fundamentally an engagement and an encounter with the richness of Polish life, and then the means of destruction. Um, uh, I agree 100%, but I would even add something else. Today, it's also about the contemporary Polish-Jewish community. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's a fascinating thing for young people as well as, well as adults uh, to come into contact with because it's a, it's a very unique community. It's certainly not the Polish-Jewish community of 80 years ago, um, but it is nonetheless a fascinating example of Jewish life and a revival of Jewish life. That's really interesting. So we have one change, which is the Poles. Uh, on one hand, um, a willingness to engage with um, history and an attempt to actually somehow deal with what happened during the years of the war. There's museums about this and so on and so forth. There's a big museum in Warsaw and so on and so forth. But as you've said in the last decade, the rise of the right, the, re the return of the legitimacy of anti-Semitic discourse, uh, a little bit of whitewashing or maybe not such a little bit of whitewashing as you said by celebrating the rescuers, which is part of the story but hardly the whole story. So that's the complicated story on the Polish side. Then we've talked about the American Jewish side where you said there is it, a number of different changes over the course of the last 30 years. We can leave the tech stuff out because we're all, all of us who are in the world of education, no matter what we're teaching, are dealing with the issues of tech. It's a huge challenge and it's not going anywhere very soon. But there's an issue of Hebrew and there's an issue of history and there's an issue of Jewish uh, liturgical awareness and Jewish literary awareness and all of that kind of stuff. So when they go to Poland, they don't really have as full of a sense of what was lost 
And when they come to Israel after they go to Poland, they don't have the same ability to kind of dive into Israeli society and feel part of this and feel whatever it is you feel when you understand the language of the street. So let's talk about one third part of this picture. One is the Poles, one is the Americans. Let's talk about the Israeli part. The Poles recently passed a law which has created a huge storm uh, in certain sectors in Israel. And I, I think most Israelis are probably not terribly worked up about it, but certain parts of Israeli society are in which the Poles basically said, okay, we're putting a stop to this whole idea where you can start suing and getting property back from the war. Property that was lost in the war was lost in the war. And Americans who are listening to us, most of our listeners are in America, um, might, be, might recall that in the last couple of weeks, Yair Lapid, who is the prime minister in waiting, so to speak, he's in the on-deck circle after two years of Bennett, if the government lasts that long, but he's currently foreign minister also and has been really doing a tremendous amount of traveling all over the world to the UAE and to Morocco and wherever else in Europe to try to mend fences and rebuild relationships, as he says it and so forth. Uh, one place where he did not try to mend fences and rebuild relationships was actually Poland, where he did quite the opposite, where he said to the Poles, this is a thoroughly anti-Semitic law, saying that Jews can't sue to retrieve property or get compensation for property. And he essentially downgraded diplomatic relations by having the Israeli ambassador come home or not go back to Poland, etc., etc. So I've been having some conversations with people here who really are very wise and are experts in Jewish-Polish history, are very involved in institutions ancillary to or inside the Israeli government, who've said a couple of interesting things to me. I'm going to put the thesis out relatively quickly. I want to hear what you have to think about it. So one of them said to me at least two major points. He said, you have to remember the map, right? A third of Poland at the end of the war was basically lopped off on the east and given to Russia. And a third of what is now Poland on the left was lopped off from Germany and given to Poland as compensation. And he said, and every time you lop off a third of the country, it's not really a third and a third, but it's probably a total of what is today 40% of Poland, uh, he said, you know, you take these huge areas and populations are transferred also. The people, the Germans moved, the Poles moved, the Russians moved, the Poles moved. Everybody lost property. Horrible things happen in war. People lose property. Populations are transferred. Borders shift and all of that. And he said, for Israel to make this into an anti-Jewish thing is ludicrous and foolish. It's ludicrous historically because it happened to lots of Russians and Poles and Germans having nothing to do with the Jews. And it's foolish because you're making a... You're making a case with Poland that you just don't need to have. So his first point is that we, we yeah, Ir Lapid and others in the government have portrayed this as a kind of a vicious anti-Semitic law when he says, it's nothing of the sort. The Poles are just saying, the war was 75 years ago. We gotta just stop all of this court stuff going on with the property. You move on. Terrible things happened. Horrible losses were suffered. You gotta move on. The other thing that this person said to me, and I think I would put him politically very much in the center of the Israeli political map. Uh, not on the far right, but definitely not on the left. Um, he said, look, you can't have it both ways. You can't say to Palestinians, oh, by the way, the, the houses that you lost in Lod or in Yafo or in Sheikh Jarrah or wherever, well, sorry, you know, you fled, you lost, it's over, you can't do anything legally to get that back. But in Poland, Across the, across the horizon, and the war was over 75 years ago, that's different. 
that we still want to have a right to get our property back. He said, you can't really have it both ways. Either wars do end claims on land, or wars don't end claims on land, but Israelis can't have it both ways, saying no to the Palestinians, but saying yes to Jews being able to retrieve or get compensation for rights in Poland. So I found both of those things actually very provocative, very interesting. And I, as I say constantly on this podcast and in the written versions of it, which is the column, the whole idea of this thing is really to get us all to think outside of our comfort zone and to get us out of our echo chambers. We all know where to go if we want to read stuff or hear stuff that we instinctively agree with. We all do that all the time. But I kind of wanted to do something where people say things that I don't agree with or I'd never thought of before so that it kind of gets me to think. And this gentleman definitely got me to think. So I'm interested in what you, as somebody who knows the Polish situation very, very well, who lives in Israel, living in Israel for how long? 30 years? 35 years. 35 years. You've gotten a little bit used to the place, I guess, in 35 years. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on that, both on the Polish law side, on the Palestinian-Polish comparison? How do you resonate to what he said? Well, I, I think that the, the first point is well taken. This is not only about the Jews. The Polish law is not Yes, millions and millions. This is something that we that generally is not spoken about. But in the aftermath of World War II, there were dislocations of millions and millions of people. It was over. But because the borders are redrawn, you've got millions of Poles who are moved from Eastern Poland into the new Poland. And lose their property. And lose their property, absolutely. And millions of Poles, millions of Germans are displaced from Poland and Czechoslovakia especially and are, uh, I, I mean, there's tremendous human suffering. And they lose their property also. That's right. And these are population transfers. These are population transfers that had in mind uh, that we want to try to uh, uh, make sure that we don't have too much of that minority that might oppose us one day in the future, like the Volksdeutsche, uh, the uh, Poles who had German origins and who were seen as collaborators with the Germans, um, and the same with the Czechs. Uh, so we don't want too many of those people around, and therefore we're going to transfer millions of them, and they will lose their property absolutely. Uh, and the the new the most recent same thing happened by the way with Hindus and Muslims in India. Absolutely, and and that tens also, of millions. tens of millions of people, and 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 many thousands of people were killed in that process as well. Um, and, and by the way, that's one of the ways in which, uh, one of the contexts in which to see the events of the 1948 war here, uh, here in Israel, uh, in which many Palestinians not only fled, but were evicted from their homes as part of this mentality that existed in Europe and existed in India and Pakistan of trying to eliminate that kind of ethnic strife uh, by popu forced population transfer. Right, if you look at the map, I mean, roughly speaking, not directly aligned, but if you look at the map very roughly, Israel's kind of in the middle between India, where it's happening, and Europe, <laughs> where true. it's happening. And you could make That's the true. argument, again, I don't think we want to get into the whole question of what happened in 48 right now, or certainly the question of whether you know future population transfers are a good idea or a bad idea. I'm right. personally opposed to it. I suppose you probably are, but we, don't, we can get into that some other time. But you can understand, at least, the people who back then said, this is simply how the world works. This is what they've done in India. This is what they've done all over Eastern Europe. Why would we not do the same thing? I mean, that context is important for understanding whether one agrees or disagrees, thinks it was right, thinks it was wrong. It just kind of thickens our historical perspective to understand that. So you're saying that this law is not about Jews at all, really? There's no, just I wouldn't say it's not about Jews at all. Okay. Okay. But Jews are not the whole story. Okay. Is it motivated is the by the Jewish thing? So there... It, it's, 
what, first of all, let's talk about what the law said. The law says that administrative decisions that were made about property transfer, allocations of property, uh, that are more than 30 years old, can no longer be appealed. If they're in the process, they can continue, but, if, but you can't have new appeals about uh, property decisions that were made administratively more than 30 years ago. And that affects not only Jews. However, there is an anti-Semitic um, element to this, and that has to do with domestic politics. And that domestic politics is this law and justice party uh, and a few smaller right-wing parties in the Polish parliament uh, who are interested in playing to that anti-Semitic trope and that anti-Semitic feeling amongst their base. That's the blood sovereignty that you raised that's, before. That's right. And this, they're, they're taking, quote-unquote, a very firm stand against the Jews and, if need be, against Israel. Uh, on this on this uh, matter. So in that regard, Yair Lapid's not entirely crazy. Correct. Although Yair Lapid, I wouldn't say he's entirely crazy. And here I say it as somebody who voted for Yair Lapid and his party numerous times. But nonetheless, I think that his his uh, language was exaggerated, mm -hmm. and maybe his language was exaggerated and lacked nuance uh, because uh, I mean he even said that this is uh, borders on Holocaust denial. Uh, which this has nothing to do with Holocaust denial. Um, but I think that Yair Lapid is also playing to a base. Right. Yair Lapid is playing to, playing to a base in Israel, which many, many Israelis still have Yitzhak Shamir's uh, famous line in their head, uh, which is that Poles imbibe anti-Semitism in their mother's milk. Uh, and uh, that is the view of, of many Israelis. Uh, it, it was reinforced, certainly, by those terrible pogroms after the war. Uh, I'm not even talking about the events of the war itself. Uh, and so... Right, because the pogroms after the war, just to make clear, nothing to do with the Germans. The Germans are defeated by that point. Correct, So correct. Poles who kill Jews are killing Jews just because they want to kill Jews. Um, not only because they want to kill Jews, because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Poland before the war also, but also for two other reasons. Well, Number property one, is one of them, right? Property, yes, th that they didn't want to return the property of those three million Polish Jews who were murdered, uh, which could have been 50% of the houses in the town, um, and, and their shops and their factories. Uh, so that was one very important factor. Uh, it, a, uh, I, I think it's in... Uh, uh, Jan Gross's book, um, Fear Anti-Semitism After Auschwitz, in which he says that uh, one Pole, when Jews returned, the surviving rem remnant returned, that uh, one of the, uh, the Poles who had taken over this house of a Jew said, of all of the Jews, mine had to return. Because he obviously didn't want to give back that home. When my parents came back to their own shtetl. Uh, my father came back to his home. He knocked on the door, uh, and the door opened, and there was a Polish family living there. And instead of the portrait of the Rambam that was on the wall facing the door, there was a crucifix. Uh, my father just turned around and walked away. Um, but that's one reason. The second reason was the Jews have been identified uh, since the Russian Revolution with communism. Uh, and so when the Russians took over and tried to impose communism, it was viewed as a Jewish plot. Uh, uh, Jewish communa, you know, com Jews are communists. 
is part of the Polish understanding. And of course, all of their suffering under communism also feeds into that anti-Semitic feeling. It's not only the bloodsuckers, it's also the Jews were the communists and our oppressors. Um, so, now we have to get back to what we were talking about. Because we're talking about Yair Lapid and the reason that the Poles... Yes, did. yeah. So I think that to some extent they were both playing to their bases. Um, and uh, and uh, I think that there was a lack of nuance on both sides. Um, I, I'm not, I don't mean to justify the Polish decision. The biggest problem is not this latest law. The biggest problem is that Poland has never established a restitution fund for lost property, which is exactly what happened in most European countries. Even in Hungary, there's a restitution fund that was established for lost Jewish property and other people as well, not just Jews. Um, because one can't take back the house that someone's been living in for 50 years or 70 years. Um, but one can establish a fund that can compensate people, if not completely, then at least symbolically. And that leads me to the second piece, uh, which is that uh, I agree totally. I think that there is an analogy to be drawn, not a perfect analogy at all, but there is an analogy that can be drawn in general terms, uh, that we cannot expect uh, uh, Poland to restore or compensate for Jewish property loss, and at the same time, not be willing to do the same for Palestinians who lost their property because they fled, uh, or because they were driven out. Um, in, uh, in that case, uh, it would seem to me that the fairest thing to do would be to create some kind of restitution fund uh, that could compensate people. Uh, because, uh, you know, especially given the enmity between Palestinians and Israelis, it's not realistic at all. Uh, and this is a view shared by, I would say, the entire uh, Zionist spectrum in the Knesset. Uh, it's, it's not feasible to bring those Palestinians back to Haifa uh, and back to uh, Ramla and Lod. Um, but uh, they should be compensated for property lost. Interesting. Well, this is just an example of how you read in the paper, whether it's an American paper or an Israeli-English paper, that there's a Polish law passed. Yair Lapid, our foreign minister, who I think in many ways is actually a very impressive guy, um, has you know basically downgraded diplomatic relations because it's an anti-Semitic law. And then you speak to someone like you, and you see just how incredibly complicated this whole Polish story is in Jewish life. Not what happened during the war, but just what's happened in the last few decades. The change in Polish society and Polish politics, the change in the education of American Jews and what they know about Poland before the war, what they're equipped to understand about Poland during and before the war now, and how they relate to Israel when they finally get here. And then, of course, finally changes in Israeli perspectives on all of this as well. And uh, if there's any goal of these conversations, it's to complicate things and it's to make things more nuanced and less simple uh, and to learn. And uh, this conversation with you has been enormously instructive and fascinating and fun. So thank you for taking the time. Wish you and your family a Shana Tova and a Ketiva V'chatima Tova and look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Danny. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.